Our Lord and our God, we come to you humble, Lord, weak, powerless, unable to do anything to save ourselves. But Lord, in Jesus, you have given us victory. In the seeming defeat of the cross, you have brought the victory over sin and death and hell. Lord Jesus, you bought that victory for us with your precious blood. So we pray, Father, again, that you would give us the eyes of faith and the power of your spirit, Lord, to see the glory of the cross. Lord, that we might understand, that we might repent and be saved. Lord, we know that, that for the majority here, that is a real experience that so many of us are walking in the new life that we receive in Christ. But Lord, we know that there are also those here who have not repented of their sin, that they are walking in willful rebellion. Lord, we pray that you would help each one to see sin, to see their sin, to turn from it and to find life, eternal life, and a crucified but risen Savior. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Far too often we misinterpret events because we fail to take our cues from the right places. So often we interpret what's going on around us by our own misunderstanding, by our own ideas of right and wrong. Far too often we rely on our own thinking in order to make sense of the world. This sinful self-reliance is based primarily on a lack of understanding of who God is and of who we are. There is no event in the history of the world that has been so misunderstood and so misinterpreted as the cross of Christ. Think of the people who witnessed the crucifixion. Bystanders hurled insults at Jesus saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself, Matthew 27, 40. They thought that Jesus was a false prophet. The chief priests and the Pharisees said he saved others. He can't even save himself, Matthew 27, 42. They saw Jesus as a false king and as a false Messiah. They thought he was a liar and a blasphemer who was getting the punishment that he deserved. The disciples who had followed him closely through his earthly ministry didn't even get it. They deserted him and wondered what it all meant in Luke 24. Perhaps just as surprising as those who didn't get it is those who did get it. Jesus was crucified between two thieves. On one side was the thief who continued to mock him even as he was ushered out of this life into hell. But the other thief repented 
and said, Lord, remember me when you get your kingdom. And Jesus promised him, today you will be with me in paradise. The Roman centurion, who the one who was in charge of the proceedings of the crucifixion, said, surely this was a righteous man. And in Mark 15, 39, he is quoted as saying, surely this man was the Son of God. So it was misunderstood it and misunderstood at the time, at the time of the crucifixion, but it's far more so today. Talk to ten different people and you'll get ten different ideas of what the cross really meant. You get ten different opinions of who Jesus is. For some people, they think that the whole thing was a fiction, that it didn't really happen. Other people think that Jesus was just a wise teacher or a moral man who was unjustly treated by the religious establishment. Some people think that Jesus was never crucified, but went on to marry and to have children. Some people, even in the church, don't get it. They think that Jesus died only as an example for us, or they blame his death only on the actions of sinful men. These half-truths reveal a lack of understanding of the crucifixion and they rob the cross of its true meaning. Now this misunderstanding comes in large part from a failure to go to God's word in order to find the truth. So where do you think you would go? If you were to open the Bible in order to figure out what the cross really meant, there are many places you could go. You could go to the accounts of the cross in the Gospels. Each one graphically depicts the events of Golgotha 2,000 years ago. You could go to explanations of the cross in Acts and Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians and virtually every book of the New Testament. You could even go back to the beginning, back to the Garden of Eden, where, the, the, where Satan was cursed. And God promised that the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and that the serpent would bruise the offspring's heel. You could go to right after that where God killed an animal in order to provide a covering for Adam and Eve. We could go to Abraham taking Isaac up Mount Moriah and raising his, his knife to slay his own son, but then God staying his hand and providing a ram in the thicket. You could go to the first Passover in Egypt where the, the blood of the lambs was, was put on the doorposts and on the lintels in order to, to hold off the destroyer, to hold off. The Passover would, would cause the destroyer to pass over the houses of Israel when the firstborn in every house in Egypt was destroyed. We could go to the, the temple sacrifice where sheep and oxen and goats had their, their throats slit and their blood thrown on the, on the temple, or on the altar rather, in order to, to represent the events that we remember today. The whole Bible points to Christ, especially to his crucifixion. The Old Testament is Christ promised. The New Testament is the promise fulfilled. But there is no passage in the Old Testament that points more clearly to Christ than the passage that we're looking at this morning. Isaiah 
53.12. This section of scripture is the fourth of the servant songs, and each one, each are individual poems in the second half of Isaiah detailing the work of the suffering servant. This one is the, the fourth and final of the servant songs. Servant songs. Barry Webb said that this passage is the jewel in the crown of Isaiah's theology, the focal point of his vision. John Oswald says that the central thought of this poem is focused on great contrasts, the contrast between the servant's exaltation and the servant's humiliation, his suffering, the contrast between what people thought about the servant and what was really the case. This is perhaps the clearest allusion to Christ in the entire Old Testament. C.H. Spurgeon referred to this passage of the Bible as the Bible in miniature and the gospel in essence. Franz Dillich said that it looks as, this, as if this passage was written beneath the cross on Golgotha. The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 wondered at its, at its meaning, and the evangelist Philip came to him, and, and he asked Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, told him the good news about Jesus. So this morning we're going to look at this passage, at this, this fourth of the servant songs, and see Christ, Christ in, in living color, infinitely better than any physical image could do. As the Lord presents the glory of the cross through his holy word. So first I've asked if David could come and read the prologue, verses, chapter 52, verses 13 to 15. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. So this stanza, verses 13 to 15 of chapter 52, serve as a summary statement for the entire passage, sort of the, the introduction for this, for this passage. And in this, in this passage, and, and here in the introduction, we, we travel with a servant to dizzying heights, and then we're brought down to unfathomable depths, but also around the world. In verse 13, we're told, Behold, behold. Throughout the preceding chapters, from 49 onwards, the commands to wake up and to watch and to listen are repeated. Israel is told to wake up and to watch and to listen for their salvation 
has drawn near. Beloved, we also must wake up and watch and listen for our salvation also draws near. First, the servant is exalted. This, this, this chapter, this section actually begins at the end. It, it goes, it cuts to the, to the end of the story where, where the, the, the servant is exalted. He is praised by God himself. His wisdom is praised. He's going to be vindicated. But it's not until the end of, of chapter 53 that we see this happen. Until that time, we're going to travel through some very rugged territory as the servant suffers horribly. Suddenly and shockingly, in verse 14, we see him beaten, battered so badly as even to be unrecognizable. And people are astonished. They're appalled. And such, such events would, would naturally leave you wondering why. How could the servant be exalted in one verse and then abased and abused in the next? Well, that's exactly what happened. Last Sunday, we, we saw how, how as, as Christ entered Jerusalem, he, he entered the city with people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. But this wasn't his, his ultimate exaltation. This was a false exaltation. The hearts of the masses weren't for him. Only a few days later, the shouts of Hosanna in the highest would be replaced with shouts of crucify him. But yet, the Lord is exalted. The Lord is exalted. This is a fulfillment of the prophecy of what that Isaiah saw in chapter 6, verse 1, where he saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. This will be in part fulfilled by the end of chapter 53, but it will be finally fulfilled was finally fulfilled at the glorification of Christ. And we who are in Christ will be witnesses of this as we see Christ enthroned, as we fall down in worship before him at the end of our lives. But Jesus is going to be exalted in his resurrection and his ascension and his heavenly enthr enthronement. Ephesians 1, 20 and 21 shows us how God worked mightily when he worked in, when he, how he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above every rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. The exaltation of Christ is ultimate. It is eternal. However, before that event would take place, the soldiers would scourge him. They would mock him. They would place a crown of thorns on his head. They would spit on him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and strike him on the head so that the long, inch-long spikes of those thorns would go into his, his, his scalp and blood would be streaming down his face. He'd be beaten so badly that people would be astonished 
he would be beaten beyond recognition. So what's going on here? You can't understand this until you look on the other side of the cross, until you see the results of the cross. And we see this there in, in verse 15. So he shall sprinkle many nations. What do you think this refers to? His blood was poured out as a payment for sin. Remember what I said about the temple sacrifice, the sacrifice of the, of the animals. Even prior to that, at that, the first sacrifices, when Moses slaughtered an ox and took the blood and sprinkled it on the altar, and he sprinkled it on the people. This was foreshadowing. This was pointing to the sacrifice of Christ. But the sprinkling doesn't just go to the, to the nation of Israel. It goes to many nations, to the Goyim. Beloved, unless you were here as a Jew, that's you. That's me. We are the nations. We are the recipients of the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. He was the suffering servant, not just for Israel. He was a suffering servant for his people from every tribe and tongue and nation. So as many were astonished by his appearance, many more will benefit from his suffering. We are the beneficiaries of his suffering. Paul goes on to quote this verse in Romans 15.21, testifying of his ministry to the Gentiles. The gospel was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. Next, we're going to see in, in the second stanza, his appearance in 53 verses 1 to 3. And I've asked if Mark could come and read that passage for us. So please look there at, at Isaiah 53 verses 1 to 3. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and rooted out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and has... As, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and he, we esteemed him not. So who believed the prophecies that were written about Jesus? To whom has the Lord revealed his power? Jesus arrived in the arid land of Israel, but the land wasn't just physically arid, it was spiritually arid. Jesus grew up right there in the middle of Israel, in the middle of a people who were supposedly looking for him. They were looking for the Messiah. They were looking eagerly for the Messiah, but when he came, they didn't recognize him. They were looking for someone who would be exalted according to their ideas of exaltation. They were looking for somebody who was regal in appearance. They were looking for one of the beautiful people. 
people wanted to, people naturally want to follow those who have a charisma those who who command respect by their appearance and their stature the jews never expected a humble messiah he had no form or majesty that we should look at him no beauty that we should desire him and i mentioned this earlier there's many reasons why i'm opposed to images of jesus not the least because he didn't look the way that he is presented in, in so many of them. With his, his long, perfect hair and his blue eyes. Not like the, the pretty boy actors who are often chosen to play him. Jesus was an ordinary looking Jew. Nothing about his appearance would have drawn people to him. And people rejected him throughout his earthly ministry. All through his ministry, people would flock to him because they had heard about the miracles. They had heard about people being fed miraculously. They had heard about people being healed, about demons being cast out, about people even being raised from the dead. But when he opened his mouth and taught them, they rejected him. We saw this when we looked a couple weeks ago at, at John chapter 5 how the, the multitudes came to Jesus. But when he told them that they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood, they rejected him. The only ones that were left were a handful of disciples. Jesus was rejected not just by the Pharisees, not just by the religious authorities, but he was also rejected by the masses. Throughout his ministry, it was only a small number that really sought him. Those who, who should have believed on him in him didn't. They were eagerly anticipating the coming of the Messiah, but they didn't recognize him. They rejected him. He was rejected by the, the authorities. He was rejected by the masses. But he would even be, at his moment of greatest agony, he would even be rejected by his closest followers. He was a man of sorrows. He intimately knew the most profound grief. And his grief is written for us on every page of the Gospels. Even as he wept over Jerusalem, he knew that they would not come to him. He knew what was happening in their hearts. And he knew even on that day, even on the triumphal entry, as he rode into Jerusalem on that donkey, he knew what was going on in their hearts. So people turned their faces away from him. They despised him. And this should also make us ask, why? So we find out in the third stanza, we find out in verses 4 to 6, the reality of the situation. And Tyler's going to come and read Isaiah 53, 4 to 6 for us. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
disrobed and bound to a post. Jesus was whipped mercilessly by a Roman soldier using a scourge. It was a whip made of, of several straps of leather, and at the end of each strap was a piece of metal or bone or glass. These soldiers were specially trained and took pride in being able to strip away flesh with each stroke of their scourge. By the time it was over, Jesus would have had lacerations all down his body. He would have been covered with blood from head to toe. This form of punishment was reserved for serious offenders. He would have appeared to be God-forsaken. That was exactly what the Jews thought. They thought that he was being stricken by God. He was being cursed as a lawbreaker, even though he had taught people what the law was all about and had obeyed it perfectly. He was cursed for blasphemy because he had the audacity to call himself God, even though he really was God. Jesus Christ Sinless, God the Son suffered for us because of our sin. He was our substitute. He was rejected for us. Ten times in these three verses, Isaiah uses the words, our, we, us, our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities. He suffered for us. In his grief, he carried our griefs. In Leviticus 16, part of the the temple sacrifice would involve the choosing of, of two goats. One would be killed as a sin offering, and the other would be a scapegoat. The first would be sacrificed symbolically as a punishment for breaking covenant with God. The second would be driven into the wilderness, symbolically carrying the sins of the people away. Jesus was both. He was the sacrifice and he was the scapegoat. The wounds that he received were the wounds that we deserved. He was crushed when we deserved to be crushed. Listen carefully. We deserve to be crushed for our sin. We are all guilty before God. But Christian, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus died for us. We need to understand that we were all guilty of the blood of Christ. Even though we weren't physically there, even though we weren't the ones that, that drove the, those spikes into his wrists, it was because of us. We are all guilty of the crucifixion of Jesus. Apart from Christ, everything we do is sin. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. The life of the rebel against Christ is sin. Every breath is sin. We're commanded in Matthew 22, 37 to 39, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, and you're to love your neighbor as yourself. 
any time we do anything less than that, any time we do anything less than love God perfectly and love others perfectly, it's sin. In that passage, we have the summary statement of the Ten Commandments. And we show, even we who are in Christ, show that, that we are still guilty of committing those sins. The Dutch painter Rembrandt painted the scene of the crucifixion and painted his own face in the crowd at the foot of the cross. He understood his guilt. He knew he was a guilty participant in the death of Christ. While a question painting Christ on the cross, he understood that part. He understood that it was as though he was there mocking Jesus. That was us, apart from Christ. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We all rejected God and went our own way. We all, at one time, lived for ourselves and our sin. We all deserve God's wrath. We all deserve infinite punishment in hell. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so I've asked if, if Nicholas would come forward, please, and to read... Isaiah 53, verses 7 to 9. Here we see the sentence. The sentence that was placed on Christ. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus was taken away by the Roman authorities and their Jewish co-conspirators and brought to Golgotha, a hill just outside the walls of Jerusalem. He offered no defense. He didn't retaliate. He could have called down legions of angels to kill everybody and to destroy everything, but he went meekly to his death. He was crucified between two thieves who had also received the sentence of death. Long spikes were pounded into his wrists and into his ankles as he was nailed to the cross. The nerves that go into your hand travel through this part of your wrist. Jesus wasn't actually crucified in his hands. That wouldn't have supported the weight. It was, he was crucified right here between those bones and all of those nerves travel, all those nerves in the, in, the, in the fingertips travel through that spot. Crucifixion was the most vile form of execution that sinful man could think of. So Jesus would have been hanging there on the cross with his arms out like this, and in order to take a breath, he would have had to put weight on those spikes 
every breath would be agony and death by crucifixion usually would take place over several days as the, the person grew weaker and weaker and finally was not able to take a breath and they would die by asphyxiation. However, at the ninth hour, at three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Beloved, the Father forsook the Son for us. For the first time in all of eternity, the fellowship, the deep love between the Father and the Son was broken as the Father turned his back on his Son because of our sin, because of your sin, because of my sin. And then Jesus gave up his life saying, it is finished. It is finished showing that he had the power to lay down his life. But he also had the power to take it up again. Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man and a member of the Jewish council, who was also a follower of Jesus Christ, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he had Jesus' body placed in his own tomb. But we know we know that the story didn't end there. But perhaps, perhaps as, as you consider these events, you're still wondering why. The answer is going to be clear in the final stanza. In verses 53, 10 to 12. In chapter 53, verses 10 to 12. If you come forward, please, Dylan. Yet it was the, the will of the Lord to crush him. He, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus was beaten mercilessly and was literally nailed to the cross. But if you limit your thoughts to the pain inflicted on Christ by mere men, you've missed the point of the passage. You've missed the point of the gospel. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Listen, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Many stumble at this. Jews stumble because Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, Cursed is every man who is hanged on a tree. Muslims stumble at this. They actually believe many of the same things that we do about Jesus. They believed that Jesus was born of a virgin. They believed that he lived a sinless life. They believed he performed miracles. They even believe that he's coming back for a millennial reign. 
but they do not believe that he was crucified, nor do they believe that he was divine. They don't believe that Jesus was crucified, but they believe that Judas somehow took his place because they believe that Jesus was a righteous man. And like the Jews, they believe, cursed is every man who was hanged on the tree. Both Jew and Muslim stumble at the cross. But Jesus was cursed on the cross. God's perfect plan from eternity past was that he would send his son to die for his people. Liberal theologians stumble at this. They say that Jesus merely died as an example. Emergent church leaders stumble at this. Men like Stephen Chalk and Brian McLaren say that, that they, they, well, they blaspheme when they refer to the punishment of the Son by the Father as cosmic child abuse. God's word tells us that it was God's will to crush him. It was the Father's plan to crush him, even though it was wicked men who actually nailed him to the cross. Peter declared in Acts 2.23, This Jesus, delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God has put his Son to grief for the sins of his people. The soul of, the, of Christ is the offering for their guilt. He bears their iniquities. Through those sinless, he was considered to be a sinner. That's the divine plan of the cross. And I mentioned on Wednesday night that, that when I taught in this passage a couple of years ago, I, I presented something that was theologically not true. I made the statement, Christ makes his people righteous by infusing into them his own righteousness. His righteousness is given to them. Now, on the face of it, this might sound true. It might sound accurate. But the truth is, Jesus declares his people righteous by imputing his righteousness into them. His righteousness is credited to them. Let me explain what I mean. Part of the cross is Jesus taking away our sin. That's half of the gospel. Jesus took away our sin. Remember, like the, like the scapegoat. This is penal substitution. As, as he took the place and was punished in our place. But the second half of the gospel is that Christ's righteousness was imputed to us. It's illegal declaration. Just like justification is a legal declaration, we are declared not guilty because of the sacrifice of Christ. We are declared righteous. As Christ's righteousness is credited to our account. On the cross, we weren't made righteous. We were declared righteous. However, we will grow in righteousness through progressive sanctification as the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and transforms us into the image of Jesus. But our guilt is given to him. His righteousness is credited to us. 
But in these events that we remember on this day, we can't see it without seeing it in light of what happened three days later. I was tempted to, to preach this sermon and then just cut it short at the death of Christ, but we were in Christ can't stay there. Just like Christ couldn't stay in the grave, we have to remember his vindication. We see this in verses 10 to 12. He shall prolong his days. Death is not the end for the, for the suffering servant. He shall see his offspring. He will see the multitudes that were bought with his precious blood for the many for whom he died. Many will be counted righteous because of his sacrifice. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 5, 18-19, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Not all men without exception. That's universalism. He goes on in verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience... Adams, that is, many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus has borne our iniquities. When he said it is finished, it was finished for us. But Christ's work was not finished. We'll see on Sunday how he ministered when he rose from the grave. But Jesus, to this day, is interceding for us before the throne of God. He will receive his reward. One day we will gather together around the throne with the countless multitudes who have been redeemed, singing praises to the Lamb who was slain. We know on the third day he rose from the grave. We know that he is now seated in heaven praying for us. On Sunday, we're going to celebrate the resurrection. But I want each one of us, the Lord would have each one of us to consider what this all means and how it relates to you personally. Maybe you already know these things. Maybe you have, have legitimately, truly laid yourself before Christ. You have repented from your sins and you're trusting in him alone. But that's true of you. Never forget your need of the gospel. Beloved, we need the gospel every bit as much today as we did on the day when we were first saved. But maybe you're here this morning as an unbeliever. Maybe you are still walking in willful sin and rebellion against God. You cannot claim ignorance you have heard, again, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have heard the command to turn from sin and turn to him. Now, maybe you've, you've never seen it or heard it in these terms before. But this is the gospel of Jesus Christ as it is written in God's word. but maybe you're here holding on to your sin. Maybe your sin is blinding you from being able to turn 
and be saved. I pray that the Holy Spirit would be at work in your hearts, that he would grant regeneration and repentance leading to life. So what are we going to do? Are we going to try and live our lives in our own righteousness? Are we going to live our lives rejecting Jesus in word and in deed? Or are we going to turn and be saved? So where do you stand? Do you see your guilt before a holy God? Do you see your need for a Savior? Then repent and be saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we know that no human being ever could have invented something as shockingly glorious as the gospel. We know that this was your plan from eternity past, whereby you could exalt your holiness, your righteousness, your judgment, while at the same time exalting your love and your mercy and your grace. Lord, we thank you for Christ who died so that we might live. Lord, I pray that you would move powerfully even now by your Holy Spirit, drawing sinners to salvation in Christ, encouraging the downhearted, strengthening the weak. Lord, I pray that you would do this by your grace and for your glory in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.